0: Hello everyone and welcome to episode 13 of Platform Enterprise, the show the platforms projects which empower. I'm your host, Rachel Donald, and alongside this podcast, I also write the Platform Enterprise newsletter, which is a weekly investigation into the policies and corruption keeping the world in crisis. Subscribe to get both the podcast and the newsletter delivered to your inbox every week at www.platformenterprise.com. All the newsletters and episodes are available on a free subscription, of course, but the best way to support platform is to get a paid subscription of just $5 a month, for which I would be extremely grateful. Joining me today is Claire Farrell, one of the founders of the Extinction Rebellion movement. I absolutely loved this interview. Claire, Claire is a force of nature and listening to her, it's really easy to understand how she helped create one of the fastest growing activist organizations on the planet. In today's show, we discuss climate change, uh, capitalism, and Claire goes into great detail about XR's quote unquote race problem. This is an awesome conversation and I, I really hope you agree. If you do, please show the podcast some love and leave a five-star rating before you go. All right, thank you so much. Enjoy the show. Thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. Thanks, love. Nice to see you. <laughs> when we like spoke on the phone and introduced ourselves last week, you were talking about the fact that you're going through the the process of having been arrested and being tried in court. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, how's that going? Could you, for maybe people that don't know what's, what's going on in the, the UK XR branch, could you explain why it was you were arrested and, and why it's particularly uh, disappointing considering the pandemic?
1: Yeah, sure. Well, um, you know, masses of people have engaged in nonviolent civil disobedience and uh, I guess like a, a uh, mass scale non-cooperation with the state really as part of our work and then the cases that have just been brought recently have been put through the court system as the UK has gone into quite a serious state of lockdown so earlier in January a case involving myself from October 2019 <laughs> So there's quite a backlog in the court, Mm. came up for trial and I went to attend in person in court and several other defendants came online on screen. Mm. I know there are people working to garner support, basically, for our charges to all be dropped or, you know, for cases to be dropped in light, especially of the fact that, I mean, there's a pandemic. It doesn't seem necessary that something to do with such a minor offence as sitting in a road is Mm -hmm. taking up court time at a time like now or drawing people out into public transport or into public buildings when it's not necessary. But more importantly, I think, you know, there's there's a different way to look at this, which is that as the hosts of COP later this year, what does it say to the world that a very, very successful part of the climate movement, which has significantly changed people's perception of, of, of the scale of this problem and the urgency of it, If you're putting those peaceful people on trial in a pandemic as the leaders of COP, it's not actually a very good look, is it? What (laughs) What does COP stand for? COP is the Conference of Parties. So it's the climate negotiations that happen every year internationally. This is COP26. So hopefully you can tell from that number that they don't work. The UK should have hosted it last year
0: we postponed it because of covid and so it's right, going to be okay. in glasgow and is this uh political parties getting together to to have a chinwag about climate change it's international leaders so depending who's
1: in power in each place they will put forward their representatives to go and negotiate at the cop process which obviously like gave us the outcome of the paris agreement which was you know an amazing, was an amazing piece of like international negotiation in that it was the first thing that got everybody on the same page, acknowledging that there was like collective effort to be made. But, you know, it's it's non-binding. Donald Trump pulled out of it. I think it's questionable really, you know, what the impact is of Biden signing back up to it because it's not working. Nobody's meeting their Paris commitments. We're not headed for 1.5 degrees, which is what they agreed. We're actually headed for a catastrophic level of three or four degrees by the end of this century. So it's not working at all. So, you know, there are major questions for me about the way this is being dealt with. But ultimately, the UK, you know, Boris Johnson, people are going to be looking to this country to do a good job of hosting. And the UN report that's just come out saying where the highest levels of concern are about climate change, UK is right up there. It's one of the most concerned nations on earth. And I'd like to think that we've had something to do with that. You know, that there's such a high proportion of people that are prepared to see radical action happen because we're conscious of the, the mm. fact that we're in such a dire situation.
0: Mm. And you do you believe that that concern is not reflected in the house of parliament considering the willingness to arrest and try not peaceful all. protesters
1: not right. at all and it's not just the criminal justice system which needs to not be fucked with right it needs to be rigorous <laughs> it, it needs to be serious it can't just it can't just bend to the whim of any old person that thinks their cause is important enough that they should go and break the law right that's fine but Actually, when you look at what this government is about, I mean, it's, it's about corruption. It's about hurting poor people. It's about austerity. It's about lies. It's about, it's about corruption. It's about rot and filth. It's not mm. about helping anyone. And it's certainly not about helping people in the global south or young people all over the world, including in this country.
0: Absolutely. It tends to be about uh, helping a a very small minority somewhere at the top that nothing trickles down from, shockingly.
1: Well, I mean, you know, I wonder how much people are going to put up with. And I think George Monbiot's doing a great job this week of saying, you know, Boris Johnson wouldn't have a political career if the media weren't so fucking corrupt. Because Mm. it's, you know, they've handed out contracts to people during COVID who don't know what the fuck they're doing. They've given money to their friends who have totally a different business model and said, Can you help us do, you know, procurement of life-saving equipment? And they go, oh, thanks very much. Give me, you know, a couple of million quid and I'll just spunk it up the wall because I don't know what I'm doing. And they go, sure, here you go. You know, I mean, that is corruption. That is corruption. And uh, the only reason they get away with it is because there's almost no media attention that says that that's what it is because everyone's in bed with everyone else. So it's, it's, it's terrifying, actually, when you look at what we're up against, because there's almost no decent
0: information. I want to stay on that, actually, before we go back into talking about the money strike, because immediately when I thought of, you know, the, the kind of media outlet that would hold the government accountable, you know, you can't help but think of The Guardian, but... I've noticed in the research that I've been doing, the, the Guardian has taken somewhat of a, of a problem with XR and has released a series of articles over um, the past year and a half or so about uh, intersectionality in XR, about race in XR, about class in XR. What do you have to say about the fact that they've been so keen to, to come down on a climate movement? Yeah,
1: well, I think it's a great question. I mean... I don't think that people should just out-and-out out support a flawed movement without criticism, you know, because their cause is noble if it appears that they've got some stuff wrong, right? So I think XR, certainly in the UK, and and the kind of leadership or the, foundation, the foundational membership of it, we're all for a bit of criticism and trying to speak to our critics as well and understand what we can do better. I think there's something about the the environmental movement right which everybody can agree in in all over the world is in in a lot of places it's very white but i think mm. possibly more importantly it's overwhelmingly middle class right so it's not a great excuse but it's true that we are low hanging fruit our middle class environmentalists and those are the people with the resource and the capacity to come on board very quickly and go yes and when we set up I think it felt clear to me that there were a lot of people who were just waiting for permission to do something that seemed reasonable in 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 proportion to the situation and those people were already engaged and a lot of those people are middle-class people (laughs) Mm. um not all of them however and I and I have to say that I'm I'm disappointed that people who put this analysis on on our movement are not also talking about the fact that lots of other movements are made up of middle-class people, right, who've got enough time and resource to be able to apply themselves to doing work outside of work, (laughs) Mm. which is what this is, right? This is just work. I think we've tried really hard to make systems and processes that invite people in and, offer people some um, small amount of support for mission-critical work as well, which the way that those systems were designed at the beginning were to try and make sure that we didn't just have, like, a paid membership of, of management and then a massive volunteer base who are unpaid,
0: right. which
1: we tried hard not to replicate that model. And I know lots of other groups on the left that are just basically set up like that, where the free workforce of volunteers are also the people that put money in every month. Mm -hmm. And they are also then, relatively speaking, feeling exploited by a team of hired professionals that tell them what to do, right? So we tried not to do that. (laughs) Um, It wasn't perfect. It's not been perfect. But we have had a lot of these considerations to try and make sure that if you're a single parent, for example, and you want to come and give your time to the movement, that... You know, in the beginning, we were able to like support lots of different people on a needs basis. So no one got a salary, but people had access to some funds to help them with their living costs, so that they could ditch their career and come and work for us in theory or whatever. So that was something important that I think is little known. I think the other thing that people don't know about XR UK, which is a shame, and which we've not done a good enough job of communicating, but also, you know, when you when when you're trying to build these relationships with integrity, it's not a PR gig. From the outset, we had a commitment to working with a group called Stop the Mangamese. We charge genocide, we charge ecocide, and they're a Pan-African reparations group who are based in London, partly, and my, my connections with them are with people who are also here in London. And so in a lot of ways, we've tried really hard to dedicate ourselves to something which I think is much deeper than diversity and inclusion work, which is reparations, reparatory justice. And trying to engage deeply with the needs with the needs of, of, of Black people. I think what's difficult is that we have found it really hard to, to mobilize a diverse section of uh, the population. I think people are very fixated on a photograph. So they want to say there aren't enough people represented here that we can see. Where you know you can't always see disability, you can't always you can't see class, you can't see. <laughs> there's lots of things you can't see. You can't you can't see someone's gender always. There's lots lots of stuff about intersectional mm-hmm. concerns which which can't be represented well in a photograph. And I think quite often a lot of analysis comes from that position. And then I guess the other thing that's interesting for me is that I had a, a big long conversation with one of our critics, Nafis Ahmed. And I went for a coffee with him and talked in depth. And towards the end of the conversation, he said, oh, I've just realized actually like what's happened here is um, that you've mobilized the UK and you've brought them to London. So proportionally, the percentage of people of color in the UK is very low compared with the percentage of people of color in London. So when we bring people from the shires <laughs> into London to do a mass action... And if a local group has, you know, five or 10% people of colour in it, they look really out of place in London Mm. because it's just not diverse. Like London Mm. is diverse. Mm. There's lots of things about representation are interesting to know that the situation's like way more complex than that. And yet I, I, I routinely hear from different parts of the movement, either somebody's gone to speak to a group in the Midlands just the other day where obviously the very, very diverse communities around Birmingham. And this person came to me the other day and said, actually, I've asked my local group, do they feel they experience racism in our movement and in our meetings? And they said, no, absolutely not. I've heard from other people in other groups that yes, I absolutely do feel racism in our movement. I feel sometimes tokenized. I feel sometimes that people are not making space for me. I feel that I have to justify my presence, you know, or ask not to be used in a photo op. So there's no, there's nothing perfect about what's going on, but I think what's interesting is that there is a there is a mixture, but there isn't a mixture of represented, there isn't a mixture of experience that's represented in the media. What's represented mm. in the media is kind of scandalous and sensationalizing. And of course, actually that makes it harder for us to improve the work when people are constantly plugging away at our image of being rubbish <laughs> on, on this issue, right? So there's a lot of work to do. And I think also, uh, you know, we've got increasing connections growing with Black Lives Matter groups. I'm in a strategy process at the moment. We had a Black Lives Matter representative come and do a workshop at the weekend, which was fantastic. And everyone talking about Black allyship and how to do that and how to be better at that and how to roll that sense out through the movement. But we also have, uh, along with lots of other groups that are self-organizing. I mean, we have a self-organizing system. So people organize whatever teams they want. So there are lots of people working on. Anti-oppression work in all lots of different ways, but there is also a big piece of work coming later this year, which is a liberation, is a co-liberation project, and I'm really excited about that because I think it seeks to sh- use a slightly different lens <clears throat> to what the usual approach to anti-oppression is, which which can can feel kind of patriarchal and transactional, and actually the liberation frame encourages us to see that instead of saying someone takes up too much space that we don't need to take them down but maybe we need to just make more space (laughs) if you see what I mean so it's not so much of a sort of push and pull as a sort of a, a collective uplift and I'm really excited to see what comes with that but it will require like a lot of co-learning and unlearning and education throughout the movement and stuff and and then it's and then for me as a media team person it's like how do we how do we represent this without tokenizing it and doing what I think some people in the movement want to do which is like take an action and then go see we're doing it (laughs) Um, because they actually want to feel better (laughs) because Mm. they feel bad about our about the things that are not right and about the the representation that we get in the media on these on these issues. So so it's it's complex and like we're you know we're we're deeply embedded in trying to in trying to improve things all the time.
0: Yeah. What do you think is the or did you perceive a difference in, in when the the kind of barrage of criticism came came towards XR? Did you see a difference between the people who just wanted to Critique and sensationalize, sensationalize, and people that wanted to critique in order to enable XR's evolution.
1: Yeah, well, I guess um, it's hard to say. I mean, I think that uh, I think that some of the criticism comes from a good place, but I think it also sometimes comes from a place of like we know best and you're getting it wrong, so we're going to tell you that you're bad and that you're wrong. And that's, I find that kind of attitude of some of it quite unhelpful. Like I've not really gone, I've tried not to go out into the world as a, as a person in XR and say, oh, I've worked it all out. Here's the answers. This is what we should be doing. This is what you should think. And you know, I've got all the, I've got the solution. So there's, 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 there's something about the f- way that we work and the way that we set up, which was, I I think, designed to celebrate and support curiosity and accept that we don't know everything and that we don't have all the answers, right? And we didn't want to come out and say, look at all this big complex mess. We've got a simple answer. Here you go. Right? I understand that's a bit of a paradox because we do have a simple answer and that is participative democracy <laughs> and, and our three demands are quite simplistic. And I think that's part of something that works really well for us in terms of communications but i would say in the spirit of not saying that we want power ourselves and not saying that we've got all the answers ourselves i mean i thought that it would carry through really obviously to people and it obviously hasn't <laughs> that by having representative participative political process would have would see immediately a, a balanced representation for people who are marginalised in our society today. So if we had a citizens assembly with teeth, as you as you might say, with a legal legally binding capacity, you would have like gender balance that matches the country. Mm. You would have balance of people on a socioeconomic basis, whether that's to do with race, religion, class, gender, sexuality, anything that you can embed in these set of rules. You would have all those people represented. So from the outset of like having our third demand met, you would have the highest opportunity, I would say, for political inclusion and justice. And I presumed that having that as our goal to give that power to other people that we don't know (laughs) Mm -hmm. would be seen as something that was like ultimately seeking a highly justice-orientated outcome. Mm -hmm. And yet I don't think that's landed with a lot of people. And then they say, oh, you don't care about justice. (laughs) Um, So, and and, and that's really difficult because I also think that, I don't know if you saw a recent article from Gordon Brown, this is really interesting, saying that he thinks that the UK is on the brink of becoming a failed state. Well, not on the brink, but like well on the way. And that Mm -hmm. includes, particularly because of Brexit, the devolution of, Power needs to go to more localized citizens' assemblies in order to enhance democracy so that people feel they've got access to power in Scotland, in Northern Ireland, in Wales, and across England, because people obviously feel that they're so powerless and they've got no agency, right, and the government is fucking everything up royally. So with with that in mind, I think if people can imagine the participation increasing in politics, then you... You will have ordinary people who are experts in what they personally need having access to saying, "This is what we need." <laughs> and I think that's probably kind of what justice is really about. It's about everybody ha- being heard and having their needs met. And, yeah, I think there's lots of th- th- there's lots of work to do to sort of explore what what this like shift in the political reality that we're living with could do, aside from what we sort of usually champion, which is, you know, ordinary citizens aren't corrupt they don't have vested interests they don't have party affiliations they don't have to win an election they're not trying to be popular there's all kinds of reasons why like ordinary people can probably make better decisions about these things than than our current politicians but even just the representation piece has been totally not feels like it's just not gone in you know Mm. feels like people have just not not recognized that that's actually massive and and would be and would be a huge step towards social justice for people. But yeah, the
0: it, it seemed to me that the, the 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 problem that people perceived with with XR was its sort of middle class origin, and perhaps therefore that any participative democracy would remain a proponent of of class. But I, I found it very interesting to read through because I mean, one of the criticisms I saw in I think a Guardian article what was the fact that it was started in a middle-class kitchen in a rural town and I was just kind of gobsmacked that a movement could be criticized for for its origin for where it started you know yeah would it be better for it to have not started because I mean XR has spoken to so many people and I do wonder if the what you're talking about here like this kind of evolution of democratic process but remaining democratic So devolving power, but not complete anarchy. I think this personally, I think this is why XR has been such a popular movement all over the world, because it speaks to a vast majority of people for whom anarchy or other systems, political systems that involve a complete overhaul of what we currently have. It's quite frightening and it's not what they want. And you were proposing to kind of fill this gap between uh, a failing centralized government and uh, disenfranchised and disempowered people.
1: Yeah, and, and I also think that, you know, more more democracy is probably the only option that we've got other than less democracy. Hmm. The position that we're in, the conditions that we're facing, and we also launched on this, was, you know, res- resource scarcity increasing hostility between nation states, increasing propensity for people to vote for a strongman leader, increasing sort of nostalgia (laughs) about Mm. make America great again, or whatever it is. Uh, The conditions are ripe for fascism. And a lot of signs have been showing for many years that there are ripe conditions for fascism in many places. And people love to say never again about the war, and about fascism and yet they don't seem interested in preemptively trying to create more inclusive and generous politics
0: which mm. can
1: stop people hopefully from veering over into something which is very much led by fear into into the far right you know we've lived through the whipping up of xenophobia and racism in the uk which bolstered the brexit campaign and stoked vast division in this country and ultimately you know uh, and this is a pe this is a frame and this is a bit of communication and work that we've not we've not got right uh yet in my opinion but you know everyone's everyone's kind of collectively losing against a very very tiny number of people who are winning off the situation as it is now and it seems really important to be able to unite people across divides which is which is also kind of why we went out and and, and said we advocate for a nonpartisan political solution, because it, it doesn't really matter whether you like each other or not. If you want to survive, you've got to work together right now. That's the kind mm-hmm. of situation that we found ourselves in. And it is necessary to try and bring everyone with you, right, and not go around pointing the finger and blaming and shaming and saying, well, I don't like your politics, so I'm not going to talk to you no 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 <laughs> it's we've got to be way more grown up than that and way more able to listen than that and way more able to understand that like people's values are often not as far apart as they seem right and i think that's the that's the other key thing about the the assembly which i don't think people will understand well which is that it's the, the the thinking behind an assembly is that you have deliberation so at the moment our politics is combative it's like people having a debating society over some old boxes right in an old hogwarts type room yeah and and it strikes me that like when you learn to do debating if you're I mean, I didn't really understand all of this until a little while ago when I got invited to go to a debating society. (laughs) I got there and I was like, I don't know how to be in this space, right? I don't fucking belong here. But I went in there and it's like, oh, you can just advocate for something that you don't believe in, right? And the point is just to win. It doesn't matter what you think. You just And if you win, you leave thinking, yeah, I've won. Even if what you were on the side of was actually abhorrent, right? So... It strikes me that the way that like debate goes on in the, in our like, you know, political chambers is like that. Mm-hmm. So it, it's not serious. <laughs> it's not actually serious about fixing problems for the best, for the greater good. It's, it, it's actually about like winning and losing. Mm-hmm. And deliberation is not about winning or losing because it's about trying to find, The best way through a complex situation and when you find a group of strangers put together to do that work the evidence suggests that that empathic work that they have to do interpersonally with each other getting over their divides Mm -hmm. letting go of some of their judgments of each other at the end of a long process of working in an assembly together you have people that realize oh my god i used to be it's this amazing story in ireland this really homophobic older guy who goes into the process to talk about gay marriage and looks at like a young queer guy who sits on his table and thinks you know oh god he's gay or whatever that goes through his mind and at the end of the process comes out in an interview and says this kid is like a son to me I've been homophobic my entire life and I've realized why and it's because I was abused it's because I was raised that way I fucking hated gay people all my life and it's disgusting and I've changed because of this process so it's like Mm -hmm. personally transformative and because it's like an empathic process it tends to create progressive and very humanistic kind of outcomes and policy suggestions And so I think that's like not that's like not really understood uh, mm. by people. Is that the intention is to create a political space where a different thing happens, mm. not talking about people going and having an argument about like, what's right and wrong or what's the best thing for the economy, I'm talking about people going into a space and overcoming separation <laughs> mm-hmm. and feeling collective empowerment. And feeling collective responsibility and rising into that place of responsibility because they're not used to it, right? People are not used to being able to make decisions about the way the world works. Actually, we do live in a powerless context. And so I do think that they can be transformative things and I'm, I'm, I'm certain that they're not perfect and they're not the end of the process. And they're not like the only thing that we can do. But I certainly think that they're for many, many reasons. They're like the best, Thing I've heard as a suggestion, for like how to deal with this mm. in in a way which which gives you like a kind response and a thoughtful response, mm-hmm. and we can't leave this in the hands of our leaders. Yeah. I mean, anywhere you can't
0: yeah. like. You I, can't. Think it, I, <laughs> I think I I think the psychology of the human brain simply cannot fathom the responsibility of leading a nation. I think that's why it does so often like seem seem like games all around the world for these people, because it's a surreal environment. It's an unreal thing to lead a, a nation state, which is simply a territory that's had its borders cut out and millions of people depending on you. That would make my brain explode. Yeah. You know, of course they relegate it to some kind of infantile process. Otherwise their brains would explode i think one thing i want to ask on on that with the democratic assemblies is because you've been involved in you've been involved in activism for, for years and years and years and deep in xr and so have you seen have you had the chance to see the climate movement be the springboard that propels people from from two different political sides or from completely different ways of life into an empathic relationship, as you say? Have you seen the climate movement as something that's been able to help people overcome their differences for a, for a bigger goal?
1: Yes, definitely. And I don't... I was talking to someone about this earlier. I don't think... Although we tried to create a framing which presents you with a universal existential threat with the hope that we would kind of not alienate one side or the other in terms of the left-right political divide. I think, you know, we've we've definitely got some liberal Democrats. <laughs> we've definitely got Labour Party membership and we've definitely got Green Party membership. I don't know that we've actually properly mobilized that many Tories to be honest. We've got mm-hmm. some ex Tories, but they're not Tories anymore. <laughs> no. <laughs> and 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 they're quite interesting people to talk to, you know, that could say I used to be a Conservative Party member and now I'm now I'm doing this, but a lot of them have a transition phase through like Green Party politics or something. Yeah. No, I th- I think the 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 thing that I'm interested in, in a way, is like, I don't know if you've ever seen like the spectrum of support as a, as a way of looking at like support and allyship for movements. But um, it's important that we build a big base, because we want to do a mass movement. But it's also really important that we've got like the soft support of quite a lot of people who basically, you know, will just advocate for what we do as like, being, being good work. And they might not necessarily ever join us on the streets until the final hour when they finally go, oh shit, I better go and join them. Like there are those people They won't come until the very, uh, the very end, but they might be more conservatively minded and they might be sitting at work, you know, with someone saying, can't believe they did X, Y, Z. And they'll go, actually, I can believe it. I think it's, you know, legitimate. We need to change the paradigm that we're working in. And actually, you know, it, It's hard because everything about our culture now is like to do with separation, exploitation, oppression, you know, damage, harm, profit, othering, in groups and out groups, winning and losing. But we've just got to work together, folks. Just got to sort that out. (laughs) In a way, I feel like this also relates to one of the problems that we have with the way that the green movement gets pitted against labour movement. So by labour, I don't mean the Labour Party in the UK, I mean like workers, unions and stuff. Because my background's in fashion and our fashion campaign ran a boycott, which was like stop buying new stuff for a year. I'm pretty certain that our little band of activists didn't have a very big impact on the fashion industry by (laughs) not shopping for a year, right? I think it's unfortunate, perhaps, that some people that shop ethically shopped less. <laughs> perhaps yeah. that was a knock-on effect, which was which was bad. But I doubt it included vast numbers of people. But it brought the argument very quickly from people that work with garment trade unions, garment workers' unions and stuff. You know, if you call for a boycott, that's bad for workers. So you can't be anti-consumption and pro worker. That's what that surfaced was the fact that we can't apparently hold that paradox or that bind, we put that in binary. And then we put the green movement versus people that are working for workers. Mm. And that's a problem that has Mm -hmm. to be overcome, because we can't allow ourselves to be put in competition with people that are fighting for a better life and better rights for people in you know, our supply chains or whatever.
0: No, you're totally right. You're totally right. I, I had somebody on the, the show who said something brilliant. He was like, cancel culture only hurts the left. You never see anybody on the right getting canceled. And you do not see the same in- infighting in right-wing uh, groups and right-wing yeah. parties. In fact, how many right-wing parties are there? Just one, you know, <laughs> every... <laughs> Every country's got their one and then they've got their super right wing one, you know, like the, the yeah. Brexit party or the the teacup the tea party or whatever it was in, in the US. And that's just like a bunch of fascists getting together and having some fun mm. um, at the expense of many, many people. But there's just not that same infighting. And that is how they stay in power because it's extremely easy on the left for us to... In fight and then see change because other people on the left want to listen. Like, we do want to do better and we want a more social world and we want climate movement and all of this stuff. So, if you want a quick fix, you're going to go and critique somebody else that's on the same political bias as you. And you know what? They'll change all the while. Right wing near fascists are in power everywhere because it's extremely hard work going and getting them to change. And there's no united front.
1: Yeah, yeah, and it's, we've been divided and ruled. You know, I mean, if people are interested in this, I'd really recommend they look up Ian Haney Lopez, um, an academic in America, who wrote a book called Merge Left, and I suspect that some of that work was really influential on people's campaigning in the in the US to to get the Democrats back in. I don't know if it was as successful. Or rolled out as as much as it as it could have been, because I, my understanding is that actually Biden won sort of not that strongly in an astonishing way, given the murderous death count that is Donald Trump's fault. the The idea being that like if you don't merge race and class, <laughs> as like get people to understand that they're that they're this, they're natural bedfellows, you don't have to see yourselves as separated. I think he talks about like the class left and the race left basically, Mm -hmm. and how those people need to overcome divides in order to create a a really powerful united front, which is Mm -hmm. gonna strive for a more just society. And yeah, his work's really really compelling. And I think just the other day, there was an article by um, the founder of Black Lives Matter The headline that's attached to it says, you know, we need to something like we need to work with people that aren't like us. So it's there's lots of people actually trying to like front this kind of message of unity and coming together and finding power together. But it's not um, it's not something that serves the media's agenda or the government's agenda. So it doesn't get as nearly as much airtime as it as it should, because there are actually more people than you think who are calling for people to come together rather than infinitely divide each other into smaller and smaller categories
0: no matter what movement you're fighting for a politics that is not interested in dialogue is not a change it is not a change from what we have even if there's you know a good intention behind it ultimately those things tend to to fall very quickly into Another form of authoritarianism. And we have seen that with excellent left movements in history. Well,
1: and also the other thing about movements that I think is important to mention here is nonviolence. There's this wonderful woman in our movement, Rowan, who I've been just in dialogue with recently, and I know that she has a very like deep and long time commitment and experience in using nonviolence. And we set XR up with an explicit statement we would behave in line with nonviolent theory. And she's just written this paper that I read last night and it and it says, you know, a lot of the climate movement seems to be not violent. But they don't go out and say we are nonviolent. Okay. They don't think about how nonviolence is proactive. And how you go out with a commitment that you will do non cooperation. And if someone hits you, you won't you won't try and kill them back. You <laughs> okay. know? Mm -hmm. And it's, it'd be really interesting for you to talk to people about this, but I think it's, it's clear to me that when you're, when you're faced with this possibility of doing something to cause significant and rapid social change, which is what movements set out to do, you have to do it with the intention that you're not going to create a shitty outcome by accident, (laughs) because so often if you create the conditions for rapid change and something goes, if the other thing's not built yet, then people come in and do something that they've already got lined up, which is usually not very good. (laughs) Or if you create a power vacuum, you know, the right can swing in and take up all the space and dominate it. There's so many ways that, you know, movements and struggles can create the conditions for social change and then accidentally oh, it's gone in a really nasty direction you know Mm -hmm. and you end up with a successful mobilization that created something good for six weeks which fell apart and then you have authoritarianism whatever and it's I think it's really important that one of the things that we had looked at in the in the research was that non-violence seems to be one of the most significant factors that you can adhere to in order to aim for like a humane and civil outcome because when yeah. you have a movement that resorts to violence even if it's in part it resorts to violence but it also has non-violence it statistically is more likely to to have an outcome which has a degraded political reality rather than a, mm. rather than an improved and comp- compassionate one and and so i think that's also a really interesting thing to to think about and to investigate and i think there's a there's certainly a lack of understanding of like what the difference is between not doing violence and being committed to nonviolence and saying it out there saying
0: i am nonviolent that's what i'm doing i want to ask you then there is a trend and i say trend because i actually see it the most on social media i don't see it particularly in active circles but there's definitely a trend amongst young woke or activists or, or whatever, young disenfranchised people who are understandably so to call for eat the rich. <laughs> and there is a lot of violence in on social media and on those spaces about you know the anger, anger directed toward towards the wealthy, towards capitalism, etc. Mm. Um, and it it's funny when you read a tweet when you see it happen a lot, it starts to be a little bit concerning. And I was wondering yeah. if you'd be interested in commenting on that, considering what you've just said about <laughs> non-violence as a foundation for a movement.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess that's another thing that I think some of the people that have criticized us, as we were talking about earlier, have misinterpreted somewhat that we're not serious about addressing inequality because we don't seek to call out the rich and say that they should be destroyed or they should be eaten or <laughs> that we should somehow have like a class war mm. um i mean we might be wrong right the thing mm. we're with the thing we've advocate for might be the wrong approach we might be barking up the wrong tree but i think if we've got to make this transition very very quickly and some people are going to lose out who are mm. very wealthy very privileged whatever like the one percent have to like reduce their lifestyles consumption they have to the middle class probably also have to (laughs) that's a lot of people who are currently in positions of power everywhere all over our society and so we have tried to set up set ourselves up where we are capable of being in dialogue with those people rather than being in combat with them that said I don't think it stops us from being able to criticize the nature of the system that keeps them living the way they live and keeps other people living the way they live and increasing this sort of spiraling gap between the rich and the poor because it's obvious that that's just getting worse and worse and worse but I don't think um personally that well sometimes I really really want to criticize some people (laughs) but I don't think that blaming and shaming people and declaring certain people to be beyond redemption just because they're winning at a system which is like rigged and disgusting and neo-colonial, I don't think it's that helpful to make it personal when the problem is systemic. Right. And and I also think that in enraged people that take their sort of, totally justified fury and translate that into nonviolent action. I don't think that those people need guiding to a place where they've sort of got it in for individuals or where they've got it in for certain individuals to say, you know, basically you're the problem. You need to be taken down a peg or two. And then that will somehow solve our problems because it, right. just because you take a few of those people out of their position of privilege or you take away some of their material stuff or money or whatever it doesn't change the fact that the system's totally set up to just reproduce them again yeah and so yes i think that like most of the systems uh, of power that we have at the moment in my in my awareness are systems that reward psychopaths and narcissists and <laughs> Then proceed to celebrate them and tell everybody in the world, "Look at this wonderful person! You should be more like this." <laughs> mm-hmm. I've got a friend who says, "You know, it's sad, isn't it, that a lot of people would rather that their child grew up to be rich than kind."
0: Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. like that's yeah. Just, that's what we're swimming in, and yeah. I think and I think calling individuals out for that is not the optimum solution although it might be quite satisfying sometimes and mm. you know occasionally i can't hold back and i say very rude things about people like philip green or jeff bezos or <laughs> i mean uh. you know there are, <laughs> there are there are people that i have personal feelings about but i i don't think that that's the basis of a campaign
0: <laughs> I I agree with you and I think that too often when discussing these kind of anomalous creatures you know the anomaly is the person who wins this game we take this kind of moral high ground as if we would be any different having <laughs> been given having been given the same opportunity or yeah. the same the, the same structure the same environment you know god i'm not narcissistic enough to believe that i would be the one billionaire that was completely different to all the rest like why are they so similar yes there's definitely underlying things and which research has proven like psychopathy and narcissism but also are people born like that or is that kind of engendered in that and journey as there well? was
1: there was some really interesting research a while ago i can't remember which university ran it but it was basically like people were people were sharing it online saying like here you go, here's the social science. It's proof that if you're rich, you become a dick, right? <laughs> Basically, that's what it said. And and it, was, and it was really, I found it really amusing because part of, I'm sure that part of what it said was like, in order to be able to deal with the scale of the inequality that you are on the top end of as mm-hmm. someone who's like, let's say a multimillionaire, you have to do something in your own mind to to reassure yourself that that's okay because you know that it's not so you so you convince yourself that you're a bit exceptional and then you convince yourself that you're slightly more exceptional and then and then you go down that road of like justifying why it's okay that you're super rich when you know like tons of people have nothing And the way that our society is sort of stratified also means that you can exist in that world and not see poor people, not see people on the streets and not see people who are suffering. And if you choose not to watch the certain news reports or TV or where it does get reported on, which is not enough, then you don't have have to understand that there are like millions of children living in poverty in the UK who don't have enough to eat, even though we're one of the richest countries in the world. Like you can just ignore all of that stuff Mm -hmm. and whilst at the same time you know go over things in your own kind of consciousness for like Mm -hmm. why you actually did make that deal at the right time and no one else would have done that Why you did make the right call at that time when you were that age and when that when you made that decision and when you won on that whatever it is you know it's like it it's it's, it's it makes sense. I mean I'm I'm not an expert on this stuff, so but I really remember when that research came out and there was delight all over like lots of lots of people that I knew were like, see, here's mm-hmm. someone's proved it. But Being that's rich is but, bad for you. <laughs>
0: But exactly, and that's why you're so right what you're saying about like it shouldn't actually be personal, it needs to be systemic change Mm. because the the thing these people are suffering. Do you know what? If you're a dick, right, no matter how many jets you own, you're suffering on some kind of like moral or spiritual level. Well, there is evidence that in highly unequal societies like the UK
1: and America and Europe, there are higher levels of mental health problems and there are higher levels of addiction. There are higher levels of of, of severe social problems that yeah. that people experience, which don't relate, cl- which do seem to relate quite quite clearly to yeah. the scale of the inequality, right? And I so mean, it's almost like the focus doesn't need to be on how rich people are. The focus needs to be on the gap, the absolutely. inequality
0: gap. Like none of this is my like special specialist area but but it's interesting policy <laughs> needs to be like and we'll go back to the we will go back to your specialist area of the climate <laughs> <movement>. <laughs> but like, i definitely think that policy needs to to relate the the two things like rich riches uh, and poverty you know when people say like i'll oh, cap mil- billionaires wealth how about saying like okay you can't earn more than x percent of your lowest paid worker put that relation into law, put it into policy because there is a relation. And going after individuals for their mental deficiencies or emotional deficiencies is just not a solution that where we all win. And we're running out of time asking nicely.
1: Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I think also if you go to like a systems based conversation or analysis and then have a, a real big look at like what's possible I think, you know, there's some people in the UK who've launched Money Rebellion, which is trying to advocate for tax strikes, debt strikes, taking out credit card loans, not paying them back. The possibility for exploration in terms of like what's going on economically is actually is actually vast. And, you know, if you look at, well, you'll know about Kate Rayworth's work on donut economics, mm-hmm. that's actually yeah. being rolled out in Amsterdam. That's actually yeah. being rolled out in other cities. We're starting to see some experimental well things that people could have seen as very experimental in terms of economics being mm-hmm. tested on the ground to see what happens right and to try and work out what what else is what else is out there and mm-hmm. we're not looking at the money rebellion folks it's not that there's a shortage of ideas <laughs> there's a lot of ideas and there's a lot of different ways that we could you know deal with exchange and trust and value and all of those you know, critical things, which are like, part of what the economy is about, right? Mm-hmm. So, again, I would just say that I, I I wouldn't like to say that I've got answers to how to deal with these problems. But we certainly know some of them are really obvious, like vast mm-hmm. inequality, and, and, and just encourage people to become like, super curious about, about what possibilities there are for doing things differently, because there's like, there's just so much. And, there's n- there's nothing in the sort of mass communications media world right now that i can see that is like serious about helping people to like situate themselves in a world which is rapidly changing which is embedded in a deep deep crisis and where there's actually like abundance of like different creative beautiful thoughtful ways to respond <laughs> mm-hmm. but it it's 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 hard to see how we can share these messages kind of any bigger than we already are because um, there's so many there's so few channels and they move so slowly in terms Mm. of opening themselves up to these conversations but I would really totally if people are interested in this stuff check out check out Money Rebellion and some of the people that they've been in, in dialogue with and and they'll continue to bring you know more and more people forward to
0: to present their ideas because there's loads fantastic what what else is Extinction Rebellion hoping to to achieve in in 2021
1: well I'm engaged in the moment in a strategy development process which is quite complicated and big (laughs) and attempting to pull together the participation of a quite a large group of people which is a bit of a like cross-section of the movement so that's kind of an experiment in itself we've never done it that way before I don't know how it's going to go it's definitely difficult always to write strategy on behalf of a a mass movement that we've intentionally encouraged to work together who don't agree (laughs) on lots of stuff (laughs) so that's interesting and um, I know that people are really keen to get back out on the streets I know that people are really behind the financial disobedience work for Money Rebellion I know that loads of people want to do serious work on anti-racism and alignment with lots of those issues, which we spoke about earlier, that haven't been visible enough and haven't been messaged enough by us. And so, yeah, I really don't know what the future's going to hold because at the moment we're like in a really nasty lockdown with a devastatingly shit government response to COVID that we've like, you know, and and we're just going into Brexit time which I think everyone's somehow not managed to prepare themselves for mentally, emotionally, or practically. (laughs) So I'm anticipating that we have, you know, lots and lots of issues with supply, lots of issues with export, lots of issues, people that I know that run businesses that can't. uh, Literally the advice from the government last week was if you've got a problem with exporting from the UK to Europe as a British business, you should set up. Your business in Europe? You're <laughs> joking. <laughs> That's the official line, folks. So you know we're we're in this. We're really in the throes of quite a lot in the UK. You know, in addition to COVID, which is massive, um, and I anticipate that there will be like severe economic repercussions for what's just happened. And all of this stuff makes it quite hard to plan. I guess what you're going to do as a as a as a social movement. But I definitely think that there is a decent appetite for more civil disobedience. I definitely think that we'll be back out on the streets later this year. But I just can't tell you the date. Like Mm. in previous years, I would have said before COVID hit us, I would have said, right, we've got this plan. We're going out here, here and here. (laughs) We're going to do this, this and this. Yeah. Um, and I just can't, I just can't answer those questions like that anymore because we don't, we don't know right now when, when, when people are going to go back out and when people are going to feel safe to go back out, you know, Yeah. yeah. I, if I was like, we didn't experiment once with this guy who came to do uh, some workshops with us and he asked us to like sit in a, sit, sit down and write down in our, in our notebook, like if you were the benevolent dictator, Of XR, what would you do? (laughs) What would you What would you actually do if you could like boss around the whole movement and say what it should do and what it shouldn't do? And I find that quite a fun exercise to like think right. What What do I think? You know, and it can really help you get clear. You think right. You know, what do I What do I think? And then what What how would my ideas like shape the work of different teams that I don't work with, or shape the work of my team in a way that I don't normally think of because I don't dream. big scale enough or whatever anyway I found useful exercise and I sort of did a bit of that the other day on my own and I thought Claire what is the most important thing and I'm not on my own in thinking this because I think a lot of people in the strategy team think the same I feel strongly that this year there's like a need for like a big push on mobilization because what we've done before is you know peak at certain point. And then movements do this. They sort of contract, the energy goes down and then you have another spurt and you go again and you do something big again. And so we're in a bit of a cycle of like, you know, rise and fall in terms of our presence on the streets and doing these big, these big actions. And I feel like there's a load of work that goes on in XR which is about like community building and people working together on different topics. There's people working on like local democracy work called Trust the People that they're trying to bring together like localised assemblies that are not about climate, they're just about local issues just to like encourage people to meet and try and affect change in their area and be interested in participation in local politics. Mm. And and then there's the fashion team who are trying to do something like looking towards bringing together people from across the fashion system to, to look together collectively at like how to fix that system there's just loads of parts to the work where people are like continuing to work in their, in their area that they're focused on and building their communities. And I think thinking about a way to mobilize through some of those spaces so that it continues to sort of encourage people to be prepared to take action together. Because I think we get stuck sometimes with a false binary. Like Should it be about community and building a movement or should it be about big mobilizations that go out and make a massive noise and get thousands of people in jail cells or whatever? And I think it's our kind of propensity to resort to binary thinking leaves us often thinking it's like one versus the other. Mm -hmm. And I think it's crucial this year that we bring those two together (laughs) better than we ever have done before, basically.
0: Yeah, Yeah. like a bilateral movement in which and you know, those two um, ideologies or sources that are feeding each other and complementing each other and uh, enabling yeah. more and more to happen yeah 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 that's fantastic no pressure <laughs> <laughs> oh my god i i am I'm so impressed what you guys have managed to achieve in in two years like the success of it having like 70 chapters around the world having turned so many people onto the climate movement and made despite having a a pretty intense name extinction rebellion (laughs) despite that like speaking to so many people that's amazing
1: well it's called in so many people who were like just ready to do something you know and and you know some of the foundations were laid really well by us some of them were not really very good some of them have gone wrong some things are not perfect but I think it's a lot of it has to do with like Timing, the fact that people have known about this for so fucking long. Like, you know, it, it it did, we did something right at the right time. But we also, you know, people who were paying attention were like, deep down, they were thinking, oh God, we're fucked. And literally no one's doing anything. They like, even have an article in The Guardian that says, you know, oh, several billion people could die because of this crisis by X date. And it literally doesn't cause any yeah any news like no one no one goes hang on a minute what's that mean (laughs) like just literally has no impact that stuff so I mean there's enough people who've been watching this stuff unfold for like decades who just thought fuck yeah let's go this is totally appropriate you know and in in a way I think when we launched we wanted to shift the Overton window you know we wanted to shift the public discourse that was one Mm. of the things we wanted to move and we wanted people to understand that it was like totally an existential crisis and it's fucking now yeah. and needs to act now and in a way that part of the work got on the got underway fast like I mean just so quick just things felt like they moved so quick public perception yeah. and the and being able to get people to look at the language they're using and whether or not it's appropriate and what we sh- how can we talk about this better and how can we talk about it more and all of that seems to have sort of In a lot of ways, I'd say that's like everyone's got the message, right? Like most people know that we're in a planetary crisis. I feel a little bit inclined to say that like we've got to now think about what's the next Overton window shift that we need to do because it's not about the climate emergency and the ecological emergency necessarily. And I was thinking this morning about it, and I think actually maybe it's just to shift people's perception of the fact that change is possible. Mm. I don't think people feel... I don't think people feel like political and social change is really a thing that really happens. You know, when we always referenced at the beginning, like women's suffrage or Martin Luther King's civil rights movement or Gandhi or whatever. And all this Mm -hmm. stuff feels a bit, I mean, a lot of it's not that long ago. None of those things I've mentioned are very long ago, actually, but they feel like they're from a different era and they don't feel, it doesn't feel realistic. People, I think now, to think that there's possibility for things to change, and that whole Thatcher kind of neoliberal, there's no, there's no other option, there is no other way. You know, we're so we're so deeply in that. You know, we wrote a book called "Exiles' Guide to the Impossible" at the beginning of the pandemic. Me and my friends worked on that, and it was to try and like issue a bit of a like encouragement and support to the movement i guess in saying Mm. like what we're trying to do here is basically impossible folks but unless you're trying to do something impossible you're not asking for the right outcome i think (laughs) you know because things are so fucked and so so it's kind of yeah leaning into that framing of the impossible and the fact that like the impossible has happened before and Mm. can happen again you know
0: something there's something brewing anyway on that (laughs) What a fantastic note to end on, actually. The the fact that all social change is impossible in the sphere in which it starts. And yet, look what it can engender in the matter of years, decades. So here's to the (laughs) impossible. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. (laughs)
1: Claire, who would you like to platform? Well, I was having a think about this and I hope you won't mind me saying it because... I know that he doesn't have very much time, but I think it would be cool if you spoke to my friend, Charlie Waterhouse. Okay. Charlie Waterhouse. He's somebody that I've worked with for quite some time and he's worked on the Brixton Pound and he worked with me on the identity for Extinction Rebellion stuff. Yeah. I think you'll find him very interesting and he's a super eloquent person and I don't, I don't hear him speaking enough. (laughs)
0: okay fantastic well we'll get in touch with him thank you so much for coming on the show this was brilliant i loved it thanks for having me love (laughs) hey everyone i hope you enjoyed that you can find extinction rebellion on twitter facebook instagram and there are over 80 national branches around the world if you want to get involved Also, head over to www.platformenterprise.com and subscribe so that one day we won't all be dependent on Silicon Valley oligarchs. (laughs) All right, everyone. Thank you for supporting the podcast. See you next week.